Again, it's a joy to be able to open God's Word with you. We are in the book of Romans, so if you have your copy of Holy Scripture, go ahead and open them to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, we'll be looking at verses 1 to 13 uh, for tonight. Follow along as I read our passage of Scripture, and then we will pray for the Lord's blessing. Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of God. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. God, we approach your word humbly and with great anticipation because in it, it highlights to us that salvation is possible that it is in some sense as easy as calling upon the name of Christ, confessing with our mouth and believing in our hearts that he is Lord and that you have raised them from the dead. And yet, Lord, it is so easy in the same breath to discount this as basic information, as Christianity 101. But we pray that it would not be so, and that this would continue to nourish our souls, that we wouldn't move beyond uh, righteousness that is appropriated by faith, but it would shape and define who we are and then motivate us to be your ambassadors, heralds of the good news, proclaimers of Christ, because we have ourselves tasted and seen that you are good. And so use this word, use this passage to challenge us to stoke to flame and kindle our hearts, to be zealous for the good news that we have been redeemed by. Father, we ask for your spirit to be convicting and guiding, uh, pruning us and refining us, that we may bring honor to you. Increase our joy by showing us Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight I want to start by proposing a question. Does your theology do something? Just think about it. Does your theology do something? 
And specifically pertaining to our passage, does your theology do something for others? If you've been with with us, throughout Romans 9, we've wrestled with some difficult doctrine, some weighty, some heavy truth, predestination, election, the sovereignty of God, teaching that is, yes, challenging, yet amazing. But sadly for some, not just here in this room, but for many across the Christian world, once this doctrine clicks, it is easy to become puffed up with pride, to carry a holier-than-thou attitude. It renders some inactive, and we just can get big-headed. That's why there's this character for those who hold to the doctrines of grace, that Calvinists have been criticized and labeled as the frozen chosen. You know, those who accept and subscribe to God's absolute authority in salvation are the same people who are often guilty of being callous and cold in their evangelism. Yet, that's not the connection forged by the pages of Scripture. Because right doctrine should produce right praxis. Orthodoxy to orthopraxy. You see, acknowledging and believing God's sovereignty shouldn't lead us to just being armchair theologians where we sit back and debate over the finer details of difficult teaching. It ought to grip our hearts. It ought to be the main impetus for proclaiming the word of Christ, especially if we firmly believe God has chosen people, that he has elected some. And you might hear the common rebuttal, well, if God is sovereign over everything, if he has already decided who he will save, then what I do is pointless. Except such a response is actually an affront to God's sovereignty. Just think about that. Such a posture exposes a lack of understanding, a lack of belief, really, because if you believe God to be completely sovereign, to wield absolute authority, then shouldn't that hold true for your obedience? That you would be the first to put it on display through listening and obeying the Great Commission in the declaration heralding of the good news of Christ. So tonight, Paul is going to revisit the righteousness of God. It's not a novel concept. This isn't the first time he's broached the topic. He's going to, again, unpack the difference between righteousness based on the law versus righteousness based on faith. And we might want to check out because we've heard it all before in the book of Romans. You know, hasn't he written on this already? I mean, the whole thesis of this letter is how the righteous shall live by faith, Romans 1, 16 and 17. And that's true. But there's a different intent this time around. Paul is tracing how our theology ought to do something. Our understanding of the righteousness of God should put things into motion, namely a burden to evangelize. I mean, just look at how Paul models this for us, beginning in verse 1. He writes brothers. So to draw his audience in, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, the Jews, is that they may be saved. 
I mean, for the first time in a while, the apostle is being very vulnerable and raw with us. Can you see his emotions gushing through this verse? Does it leap out at you? Listen to these words of affection, brothers, heart's desire. This is not the language of some snooty and stuffy theologian. This is the soul of someone set aflame by the truth, by the doctrine of election that Paul feels this strongly for his own people, for the Jews, because they are paradigmatic for the phrase, so close yet so far. Those who ironically were once called the people of God need to be saved themselves. But in Paul, we see how as thorny and complex as the doctrine of election and God's sovereignty may be, it doesn't sap away evangelistic zeal, but it actually fuels it. In fact, the sovereignty of God is what drives the apostle to his knees in prayer and petition. So at the outset, let that be a reminder to us. Let that shape our approach to the text. This is why we study hard passages like this one in the previous sections. That as our hearts are moved by the truths of scripture, we would move towards others to plead with all to repent and believe. And Paul is going to set out to accomplish this in two parts. By first stirring our sympathies for those deluded by a righteousness based on the law. And then secondly, by stoking our evangelistic efforts because we humbly know better. Not because we have all, it all figured out, because God has been gracious to reveal the truth in his word. We have received a righteousness based on faith. So first, a faulty righteousness based on the law. A faulty righteousness based on the law. Look again at verse 2. So now he's, that four is a conjunction further unpacking why he has this heart for evangelism, a heart for these people to be saved. He says, for I bear them witness that they do have a zeal for God, but it's faulty. It's not according to knowledge. So Paul admits from the get-go, there is no denying that Jews are zealous people. I mean, you meet any devout Jews today and you're immediately impressed by how meticulous, how scrupulous they are but the lengths that they as well as their ancestors go to abide by rules and customs only makes them more pitiful. The problem is not their commitment or attention to detail. Zeal is a good thing. Paul doesn't condemn the Israelites for being zealous, but they were zealous for the wrong things. You know, there's something amiss if I'm more engaged and excited about Dodgers or candy than my own family, right? Zeal is not bad if it's not disordered. But when it is, it can lead to tragic outcomes. You've seen and experienced this before. It's that successful businessman who has acquired so much, but at the cost of neglecting his own family, leaving him with no one to enjoy his wealth with. It's the cult member who has sacrificed and invested so much only to later discover it was all a hoax. They were conned. 
To paraphrase St. Augustine, he said, it is better to limp in the right way than to run with all our might in the wrong direction. You see, zeal in the wrong direction is a life filled with regret. And because we know the truth, our hearts ought to break for those who are blindly following and pursuing emptiness. And what we find to be even more tragic is that the Israelites, they were zealous for God, but they lacked knowledge. Like those today, maybe in our in the office or people we know, friends from the past or college, who have an interest in the divine, in deity. They're curious, but they pull up short by buying into conspiracy theories or phony spiritualism. It doesn't matter how many coexist bumper stickers they have or the number of other religions they've investigated. A person's earnestness can only cover up so much error if they lack the knowledge of the God of the Bible. And for the Jews, this was their critical mistake. Look at verse 3, showing us how it's not according to truth, according to the knowledge of God and his word. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So here, Paul is linking, pairing the ignorance of God's righteousness with establishing our own righteousness. It's one or the other. It's kind of like an inverse relationship. Because if you are confident in the credentials of Christ for a right standing with holy God, then you're not concerned about trying to establish your own. You're not into morality or putting on a show by dressing yourself up in religious garment. However, Without a firm advocate, without an anchor, you will drift to justify your existence, to prove your worth, to establish your standing, your own righteousness. This was the flaw of the Jews. They were so fixated on how to distinguish themselves as good, as better than the rest, that they were obsessed with all their law keeping and doing. And because of that, they missed out on what God was doing, what he had provided. So that when God offered a gift, an alternative, it didn't fit neatly or nicely into what they were expecting, into their Jewish system of you get what you deserve. After all, grace is the polar opposite of a wage. And I think we can see parallels with this in our own lives. This is something a lot of us have a hard time digesting because we have been raised in a similar environment. And many of us have been indoctrinated by a works-based culture. We've been inculcated from a young age where you earn your keep, where hard work pays off and is reflected in stellar GPAs and trophies, that the brilliant and beautiful have cemented their place in society by merit. In other words, our identity is often built on what we do rather than who we belong to. So ask yourself, you know, have you grown accustomed to substantiating your place in the world by your accolades and feats? You know, trying to win in the game of life is exhausting because you never know if it's enough. 
But a relationship, on the other hand, affords enjoyment, security. You see, there is a big difference in having an employee ID versus belonging to a family. Your employment status, whether you, are still, whether you still have a job come tomorrow, depends and can change based on what you can bring to the company. But your relationship in the family is fixed. It's based on flesh and blood. Now, the crazy part is when we import a works mentality onto a relationship with the living God. And often we can treat him like he's some religious program instead of a loving father. You know, if I just read enough, if I just attend church enough, serve enough, evangelize enough, then I'll gain God's approval. And what we have done is we have perverted Christianity into our own form of law-keeping. But we don't slave away for God's righteousness the text tells us we submit to it, submit to it, to his terms. That in God's economy, we are not justified by law based on our works, even our Christian deeds. We are justified by faith based on Christ's work. And the Israelites were misguided because this was actually what the law was a precursor for. Verse four, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, this may be a little confusing. What does Paul mean by this sentence? Well, think of a race. You know, if you're like me and you've ran a lot of marathons in your lifetime, I'm just kidding, I don't run. Um, My wife has, so by marriage, you know, by association through union, I'm quite the gifted runner. Uh, But when you start the marathon, you're striving to complete the whole thing, right? All 26 miles. And after hours of pumping your arms and putting one foot forward in front of the other, at last, you cross that finish line. You're exhausted, but you know the race is over. You've completed the marathon. Now, the finish line is both the goal and the terminus. The finish line, right, is what you had your sights set on. It's what you're running towards. 10 miles left, five miles left, last mile until you cross that finish line. But the finish line is also in the same when the race is officially over. That when you cross it, the marathon is done. There's no, okay, now you have to run back all the way to the start. That would be messed up, a very cruel joke. It's called a finish line. And in this verse, the apostle is highlighting both the goal and terminus of the law. That by its commands, its prohibitions, it's pointing us to the goal, holiness, perfection, righteousness. Yet in peering at the law, we also see our own reflection. Sure, the law reveals to us what righteousness should look like, what the standard is, but immediately we recognize how we'll never measure up. In our sin, we're DQ'd from the start. And left to ourselves, we will never arrive at the goal. But this was the lesson God intended, one of the lessons at least, God intended to teach through the law. That if this goal is unattainable, well, then it must be accomplished some other way. 
the law hinted at something else, namely someone else. In our inability and failure to be righteous through the law, we were being trained for the righteousness of God manifested apart from the law, as we saw Romans 3, verse 21. That the law's terminus was essentially to roll out the red carpet and cue an introduction. Enter Jesus. And when Christ arrives, the era of the Mosaic law is over. When Christ arrives, he is what the law has always anticipated and prepared us for. But if we play dumb and refuse to believe, then we are traveling back in time to our own detriment. We are forsaking the righteousness of God that he has provided, which is what Paul keys in on in verse 5. He says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. So we, we may be puzzled. Does the apostle mean here that actually righteousness based on the law, it can indeed be attained through the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them? In theory, yes. Pragmatically, no. Um, let me try to illustrate. It's like the three-point line in basketball. Now, the three-point line wasn't always there. Um, it was first introduced to the NBA in 1979. Um, but let's say you were there for the first season that it was implemented and you didn't like it. You're a purist, right? Um, in your mind, every basket should be worth the same. You should be able to beat your opponent without some gimmicky three-pointer. Now, no one is forcing you to launch shots from 20-plus feet out. You can stick to your convictions and try to outscore your opponent without pulling threes. But it's a silly strategy. You'd be at a huge disadvantage. You're playing the game with a major handicap when a new era has dawned. And this is where the illustration breaks down because while highly unlikely, yes, you might be able to beat the other team without shooting a single three, but the righteousness based on law demands 100% shooting percentage. Technically, yes, it's possible. You just have to be perfect. Never breaking the law, upholding the commands to live by it, which we know is impossible. Rendering righteousness based on the law in effect impossible itself. And Christ has come to put an end to the futility of our efforts. So to spurn the dawn of the Son of God for an archaic system is to not only put yourself at a severe disadvantage, it is to sever yourself from the only true possible source and means of salvation, the perfect righteousness offered through Jesus Christ. And that brings us to our second point, a free righteousness based on faith. A free righteousness based on faith. Verse six says, but, showing contrast, Paul is now pivoting, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. We'll pause there. Paul quotes now from Deuteronomy 30 to support his argument. And he slightly alters the reference, but with no real material difference. 
Paul's main point, Paul's contention here is that we can't plead ignorance because of inaccessibility. We can't pretend like, well, the reason we didn't believe is because we didn't have the information or Christ was distanced or the gospel was not made available to us. It's, it's not like it was up in the celestial heavens or buried six feet under, beyond our reach. Uh, this section kind of reminds me of Psalm 139, uh, verses seven to 10, where the psalmist says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in shul, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. Uh, Those verses in the psalm declare God's omnipresence. But it escalates and it's evidence in Jesus Christ. How will Paul comments himself? I love what, when when the apostle helps us, And he says, after each of these references, that is to bring Christ down. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. What the apostle is doing is he's noting that God has beaten us to the punch. That the very ministry of Jesus removes these hypotheticals because he has drawn near. He has taken the initiative. That in Christ, when Christ in his incarnation, he humbles himself, taking on flesh and blood to live among us. That in Christ, in his resurrection, he has conquered the grave to be with us forever. Our God, we know from scripture, is a glorious, transcendent God, but he is also a God who comes close. That in Christ, he is also imminent. You see, in the Son of God, God has made the first move. Therefore, our first move is not to do, but to believe. A righteousness based on faith is not preoccupied with our capacities, but looking, trusting, believing in God's capabilities, his saving act in and through Jesus Christ. And this is something we all can do. God has come near to us through the incarnate son, Emmanuel, God with us so that we no longer need to latch on to some esoteric, lofty, secret knowledge, nor do we need to uncover some hidden treasure chest at the bottom of the ocean containing this wisdom of salvation. No, instead, verse 8, but what does it say? The word is near you. It is so close to you, in fact, that it is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. You know, some gifts in life are very difficult to redeem, you know, forcing you to jump through a ton of hoops just to make your life difficult. And you maybe have to read all the paperwork, all the terms and conditions to ensure that you qualify for the prize before it's ripped away from you. Or you have to buy something else first in order to uh, receive another great offer. Uh, Others require you to mail in some rebate with a long essay filled out before a specific expiration date, but the gospel has no such caveats. I love how plain this is, you know? You read this verse and it's nothing like shocking or glamorous. There's nothing about privilege, experience, acumen, and skills, but what does it say? It just says the word is near. The gospel is not restricted by the recipient, but freely extended to all. And nothing is hindering you 
obstructing you. It's already in your mouth. It's already in your heart. You just need the faith to appropriate it, to express it in verses 9 and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, guess what? You will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. This is bottled up, the word of faith. Now, it might sound like a sweet deal, right? Easy as one, two, three. Confess, believe, bam, eternal salvation. But paradoxically, the simplicity of this is precisely its profundity. Mouth and heart here, well, they represent and encompass Everything, everything. We talk about this a lot at Lighthouse, that the heart is the control center of our lives. It's the place where our deepest desires, our truest values, our strongest beliefs reside. And the mouth, well, that's just the very instrument in which all these internal elements are manifested, that our convictions can't remain contained. It surfaces from the inside out. As Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So you see what Paul is teaching here? While it is straightforward, it is simple, it doesn't require a master's in divinity, salvation demands our all. Salvation expects our entire being. It is nothing less than staking our very lives on the reality that Jesus is Lord and he has resurrected and is alive. And yes, that is simple, but that is all-inclusive. That is sweeping. It demands all of you. Now, verse 10 essentially mirrors verse 9 to emphasize the significance of belief and confession. Righteousness by faith is available to the masses, but this is no one-time incident. There's no raise a hand, say a prayer, walk an aisle, and I can coast for the rest of life. Now, those who heed the call of Christ continue to walk with him. So even if you've been a Christian for quite some time, you're not off the hook either. Because here's the thing. The entry into the Christian life is what is supposed to characterize the Christian life. The entry into the Christian life is what characterizes the Christian life. At the risk of being reductionistic, we don't really ever graduate from confessing Christ as Lord and believing in his resurrection, which is how these verses can be applied to all of us, whether you've been a Christian for a week or you've been a saint for decades. Praxis, can these verses be an accurate summary of your life? Will your ideas, morals, thoughts, pursuits, relationships, behaviors, and actions affirm the lordship and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Is there discrepancy or consistency when it comes to your usage of time, entertainment, money, your views on politics, war, your job and hobbies, how you share the gospel, does it all tell of and can it all be connected back to Christ somehow, some way? 
You see, when we veer off track, we are in danger of returning to righteousness based on the law, whether it's in our own personal walk or in our efforts of evangelism. It can be so subtle that we believe we operate by our own strength instead of resurrection power when we take credit for our own maturity, spiritual maturity, or when we feel good about leading someone to Christ. We confess work or the approval of others as Lord when they take priority over what God commands what scripture dictates. But listen, when we make it our aim to submit and obey Christ in our finances, purity, words, and aspirations, we show him as he is, supreme king, the Lord of lords. When we suffer well, endure persecution, die to self, stand with Christ to proclaim the gospel to others, we rehearse and declare that God indeed has raised Jesus from the grave. He's alive and well. And the proof is in our zeal to share this good news. Now, this might sound like a tall order, but it's not without persuasive reason. Look at how Paul presents this to us in verse 11. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. You know, if we're honest with ourselves, shame is probably a decisive factor in a lot of our choices. You know, we don't want to trouble others, so we refuse to ask for help. We have difficulty confessing our weaknesses because we're embarrassed about how we'll be perceived. We're ashamed to pray in public and acknowledge our faith, psyching ourselves out with all the hypothetical questions and insults that might be raised. Maybe we secretly fear being wrong about what happens after death. But the scriptures are unwavering. They attest with full confidence. Put your faith in Christ. All your worries, concerns will be vindicated. Maybe not according to your expectations or preferences. Maybe not on this side of eternity. But God will see to it to render justice on the final day. In fact, he will do more than that. God lavishes even now, says in verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Notice the specificity here. It's not the world's riches. It's not the riches of billionaires like Bill Gates and Elon Musk. It's not our own riches, but it's his. And how does God define true riches? in salvation, in the gift of his son. Verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's the good story, the good old story. And I think in a room of this size, we'd be naive to think everyone is a Christian. So it's only right and appropriate to end our passage the way Paul does, with a call to repentance and faith. And if you're a believer, well, let that be a a rehearsal call, a time to renew greater fervor for the things of the Lord, a call to call on the name of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Because this is what Christianity boils down to. This is the gospel, that we were created to be in relationship with him, but we have played the fool, we have spurned our king, we have decided to be the Lord of our own lives. And because we have diminished God, his holiness, the glory of his name, 
We deserve to be punished, sentenced to hell forever. And yet God, in his grace and compassion, sees us bankrupt in our sin, and he sends his son to redeem lost sinners, to live a perfectly righteous life, a life we can never do by our own strength. We can never measure up so that when Jesus goes to the cross, he does not deserve to be there. He takes our place. He is our substitute. So being blameless and innocent, he can bear the wrath of God towards sinners. That the offer of salvation would be then extended of righteousness by faith. That if we would confess Jesus as Lord and believe that God has crushed his son, that his death has paid the penalty of our sin, and it is vindicated and approved by his resurrection, then we would be credited, we would be viewed as if we had lived Jesus' perfect, blameless life. We'd be welcomed back into the family of God. We would have life, eternal life. Now, I'm sure for a lot of you, this is nothing new. This is not revolutionary stuff in uh, the Bible world. But this passage has guided us through the core tenets of the gospel. It's done a fairly plain job of comparing a faulty righteousness based on the law with the free righteousness based on faith. But we don't want to miss the spirit in which Paul is expanding upon this doctrine. You see, it's not in some sterile science laboratory where we're dissecting the central components of the Christian faith. These truths are proclaimed with people in view, with loved ones in mind. And that, that sets the tone even from verse 1 when Paul unloads and says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer is that they may be saved. These truths are to be taught and received with a humble heart, a heart broken for the broken hearts of others. Hudson Taylor said, the Great Commission is not an option to be considered. It is a command to be obeyed. Martin Luther said, it is the duty of every Christian to be Christ to his neighbor. And so I return to the question that I begin with. Does your theology do something? Does your theology do something? Specifically, does it do something for others? You see, this truth that you now have received from God's word is not just yours. It's a stewardship. Paul, uh, in the book of Timothy, uh, commissions his young disciples saying, guard the good deposit. Guard what has been entrusted to you. And how do you guard this good deposit? Not by clinging onto it, not by hiding it under your bed. Guard the good deposit by depositing it in others, by sharing the good news of Christ so that they too may have life and life abundantly. And I think this is so pertinent for our group because as young singles in this unique season of life, this is probably the time in which you will have the most point of contact with non-Christians. You know, like when you're a junior high or a high schooler, even college 
kid, you're um, still going through just, I don't know, puberty and growing up and learning stuff, um, learning how to be independent, cook on your own. But as you enter young adult, hopefully you have most of that figured out. But it's so that you are equipped then to relate with others, to be salt and light in this world. Capitalize upon this stage of life. Those in your office cubicles, those you take graduate classes with, those you live with, your sports teammate, your hair salons, your gardeners, I don't know, whoever God puts in your path. God has sovereignly placed these people in your life so that you can be an ambassador, so that you can evangelize. If you truly trust that God is in control, God is sovereign, then these people in which you cross paths with, they're not accidental, but divinely tailored so that you can be an influence, so that you can be Christ too, so that your heart's desire and your prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Let's pray. God, I'm convicted. I think of so many opportunities I have squandered, so many moments in which I have been silenced because I've cared too much about what people think. I've sought to establish a righteousness that is based on my own doing, my performance, how I will be perceived. And Lord, I pray for forgiveness. And I'm sure many others here feel the burden and the guilt of uh, missed opportunities. But Lord, your grace is sufficient Lord, you've given us those failures to remind us of um, greater obedience, to point us, uh, to capitalize on uh, the opportunities that you will bring us. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would immerse our hearts in the wonders of the gospel, that righteousness is as simple as uh, confessing confessing with our mouth and believing in our hearts, And it would stir within us a great desire then to share this news with others. Lord, we pray that you would continue to be at work in our hearts. Lord, to humble us, to mold us, to be more and more like your son, one who um, came for the lost. And so, Lord, may you renew within us a greater vigor to um, proclaim the good news because it is good news. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.